Oh, buddy, you sound like a fucking asshole. And I don't want to talk to Gina because her boyfriend just died. Yeah, motherfucker. Snowfire, Season 2, Episode 27. Did Bill Little fight back? The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. If you enjoy Snow Files, please give us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help Jamie's story get out to the masses. Visit snowfiles.net and click on Rate Show. And while you're there, leave us a voicemail that may be used on the show and check out our cool Snowfiles merch. Did Bill Little fight for his life, and why does it matter? As we've said many times before, our podcast is based on facts and evidence, not conjecture. And we've provided police reports, testimony, and proof of new evidence from state documents that were withheld from Jamie's attorneys prior to his trial. However, Jamie was convicted solely on circumstantial evidence. No one saw the crime occur. The two witnesses who testified against him always stated that they saw someone walk out of the store, and their descriptions were vastly different, one of whom has recanted his identification. The other has refused to speak with anyone from Jamie's team. However, his identification has been eviscerated in higher courts. The state also presented circumstantial evidence of primary jailhouse informants, who now we know were either intimidated threatened, received deals, or just flat out admitted that they lied for one reason or another. That's it. The only evidence against Jamie, and it resulted in a life sentence with no chance of parole. The crime scene itself, I will sound like a broken record when I say this, but the crime scene itself, you know, I think gave the impression to the investigators that there was a struggle in there. And 
So here's what we know. Based on the state's evidence that lends to the possibility of a struggle or a fight and possible trace evidence left on the clothes. Number one, Bill Little made it known to his family that he would fight anyone who tried to rob him, according to an April 15th police report from Bill's mother. Brenda Little stated that her son told her that if robbed, he would not give up the money without a fight. Bill's father was interviewed the same day and reported similarly. Ronnie Little said his son did not like anyone taking things from him and that he had said he would not give up the money without a fight. Bill's sister, Susan Little, was also questioned about the issue in a police interview. How did Bill like his job? He did not like it at all. What do you think about if he was robbed? What do you think he would do? I just think he, I mean, just the type of person he was, you know, I, I could see him just trying to be a hero. I don't, I don't, I can't see him. I mean, I sit there and think that he would be scared, but you know, he was 18 and he's trying to prove himself and stuff. And I think he just thought, you know, that he could take care of it. I could see him trying to put up a fight. A friend of Bill's also stated In regards to Little working at Clark Oil, Little thought it was boring and stated if someone tried to rob him, he would have to see a gun before giving any money. So why were police asking that question? Obviously, there was an indication of a struggle. Number two, statements from friends saying that Bill wanted them to stay at the station. Danny Hartley and Dion Rhodes both stated they were at the station with Bill shortly before the crime occurred. Both of them reported that Bill asked them to stay. In May of 1991, Dion reported. Dion stated that Little did not want Hartley to leave that night and that Little asked both of them to stay on at least four occasions. Danny reported the same as late as 1999. 
Danny continued by telling us that William asked him not to leave. However, he left anyway. Danny even told Bill's mother shortly after the crime in April of 91 that Bill asked him not to leave. Brenda stated after the death of her son, she had a conversation with Hartley who said that on the night of his death, William Little begged Hartley to stay at the Clark station. Was Bill anticipating problems with unknown people? But these are just statements from people. What is the physical evidence that suggests there was a struggle? Number three, cash register, no sales. In 1991, cash registers were standalone. That is, they were not networked through systems that we have today. In order to open the cash register without making a sale, there was a simple no sale button, and when pushed, it opened the drawer. The no sale button would not function unless the drawer was closed. The no sales were recorded on the cash register tape, so a manager would see if an employee was opening the cash drawer without a transaction frequently, which would be a red flag for an employer that an employee may be stealing. For example, if a customer made a purchase for $5, an employee who wanted to make a quick 5 bucks may not ring the items up, but just push the no sale button and pocket the 5 bucks. According to the timestamp on the cash register, the last purchase was made at 8.05 p.m., $2.46 for a pack of cigarettes and a can of pop. One minute later, at 8.06 p.m., a no sale occurred. Six minutes later, at 8.12 p.m., a second no-sale occurred. Three minutes later, at 8.15 p.m., a final no-sale occurred. At 8.16 p.m., the alarm company received an alert that the alarm button had been pressed. The Bloomington Police Department was notified by the alarm company one minute later, at 8.17 p.m. As we know for sure, the cash register drawer had to be shut in order to register a no-sale, which means someone opened the drawer, someone pushed the drawer closed, someone opened the drawer six minutes later, and someone pushed the drawer closed a second time. Three minutes later, someone opened the drawer again. One minute later, the alarm button was pushed. Recall. The cash drawer was open when the police arrived. A lot can happen in nine minutes. So what was happening during the first and second gaps? There weren't any sales during that time. So we are to believe that Bill was just there by himself pushing the no sale button that could have gotten him fired for suspicious activity? To us, it looks like Bill may have been struggling with someone he must have known. I mean, would he really have shut the cash drawer on a stranger coming in waving a gun? He certainly wouldn't have these gaps in time from shutting the cash drawer. Recall from Season 1, Episode 3, and the first report from State's witness Gerardo Gutierrez on the night of the crime. He stated he stopped for gas around 8.05 p.m., and while he was pumping gas, he could see the attendant arguing with someone inside. And then when he went in to pay, Bill wasn't social or acting like he usually acted at all. And when Gutierrez paid for the $3 worth of gas, Bill dropped the change on the counter, 
He also pointed out a man who was standing beside Bill, who lit a cigarette while he was there. That would have been right before the first no-sale occurred. However, by the time of trial, nearly 10 years later, detectives found that according to the register tape, the last $3 purchase of gas was around 7 p.m. That's what they used to discredit Gutierrez's timeline of events. They convinced him that he must have been there much earlier, even though he said he went straight home and knew that he arrived at 8.12 p.m. because he looked at the clock when he walked in the door. We do not believe that Bill bothered to ring up the $3 purchase of gas from Gutierrez during a robbery. Why would he? It was also revealed during trial that there was a gas variant shortage of $4.63, which could easily account for the $3 purchase that was not rung up. I mean, are you going to bother ringing up $3 of gas while being robbed? Number 4. Stool Knocked Over Police photographed the knocked over stool, but there was never any notation of a reason the stool was knocked over, so we must assume the stool was already knocked over when the first officer on the scene arrived and was not knocked over by investigators. The stool was never printed or taken into evidence to our knowledge. It was revealed at trial that the stool was there for employees to sit on only when they were caught up on all of their duties and in between waiting on customers. We can assume that it wasn't normally kept on its side, so we have to infer that it was knocked over at some point during the robbery. The first obvious answer is that it was knocked over when Bill was shot, but we don't know that for sure. It's just there, laying on its side. But an educated guess would be that Bill probably wasn't sitting on the stool when he was being robbed or even while he was arguing with someone during the no sales, because if someone would have walked in, he most certainly would have stood up. Could it have been knocked over during a scuffle with the perpetrator? The point being, the stool is knocked over, which shows some type of physical distress during the robbery. Number 5. The cash insert was missing. As Leslie painstakingly mapped out, Bill was found on the floor with his head toward the cash register. In order to take the cash register insert, the suspect would have had to move Bill, or at least step over and probably touch his body to get the cash drawer. Remember, it was a very small space. To circle back, if Bill was struggling behind the counter with someone over the no sales, there very likely would have been physical contact on the onset. Were they fighting over the drawer insert? Again, nine minutes is a very long time in this scenario. There is obviously no accounting for the no sales during this time gap. Lacking any details about the crime scene, measurements, etc. leaves two known facts. The cash drawer insert was missing and Bill did not carry it out. Someone else had to get by and very possibly touch the body to get the cash drawer insert. Number 6. Head Wound and Bruising on Forearm As mentioned in the last episode, during the autopsy, Scapala noted a subgaleal hematoma, or a big knot, on Bill's forehead. He also noted five bruises on Bill's forearm. How did those wounds occur? 
Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snowfiles Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the join our Patreon button. Before we get into this part of the show, we would like everyone to understand that it is not our intention to disparage the victim. The following police reports reveal that Bill may have been in trouble and possibly in over his head, and it would be a disservice to you not to tell the entire story. That said, no matter what Bill may or may not have been involved in, he did not deserve to be murdered. There has been no justice for Jamie or for Bill. But maybe by revealing this information, someone who knows something will come forward and help right this wrong. So who would want to hurt Bill Little? Gambling, Leroy Poolhall, and Molly's connections. It isn't clear if Molly's and the Leroy Poolhall are two different places. They seem to be used interchangeably, so this can be a bit confusing. We suspect it's the same place, but if anyone knows for sure, feel free to let us know. In her April 15th police report, Bill's mother, Brenda, stated that Bill did not have a drug problem as far as she knew, but that he did have a gambling problem. He would play pool and cards for money at the Leroy Pool Hall. She stated that he confronted the owner, Tom Markham, about the gambling, and that Markham would not allow Bill in the pool hall to gamble after that confrontation. The handwritten report goes into more detail. Brenda stated that Markham jumped in her face one day at Molly's in Leroy and told her she was ruining his business. Brenda responded that someone should call the police. She also stated that Bill wanted to leave town and go live with his aunt in Washington State. Detectives Thomas and Crow talked with Detective Mike Essick, who was working with Molly's burglaries in Leroy. In a report from April 4th, 1991. Detective Essig stated there have been seven burglaries since the last week of November 1990 until March 11th of 1991, and cash and liquor were taken. Five people had been charged to include Teresa Witherland, Pam Smart, Bill Woodridge, Joe George, and Shane Matheny. It stated that Teresa Witherland, Woodrum, took the key from Molly's from her father who was a janitor and part-time bartender, and that the key was used each time to gain entry. The only two who claimed to know Bill were Teresa and Pam, and the only burglaries still unsolved at Molly's were from February 17th, March 2nd, March 6th, and March 11th, and Essig suspected that Jacob Mason and Scott Litherland may be good suspects for those remaining burglaries. Essek went on to say that Mason, Litherland, and Bill Little are suspects in a burglary that occurred at the Sunico Station in Leroy on August 21, 1990, in which $700 was taken, and that Mason and Bill Little were working at the station at the time of the burglary. All three suspects were interviewed, with Bill Little being talked to on September 5th, 1990. We have not been successful 
in obtaining the police reports from the Seneca burglary. In Brenda Little's report, she also stated that Bill talked about who was stealing money from Molly's in Leroy, and that Bill was going to tell the police about the thefts. On a side note, from last week's discussion about missing reports and documenting evidence, at the time of this interview, Brenda turned in Bill's wallet back into police because it contained papers and telephone numbers that the family obviously thought might be important. Recall that Kalal removed the wallet at the crime scene, stating it contained Bill's ID and one $20 bill, and turned it over to the coroner. The wallet was returned to the family. Bill's wallet should have been found and entered at the scene, or at least at autopsy. A related tip was called in around the same time. The tipster's name is redacted. He had heard little gambled at the Leroy Pool Hall. He thought mostly cards and pool. He talked to Little two to three weeks before his death, and he states he owed $40, unknown to who. The tipster also said, while he was at the funeral, he was told by one of Bill's uncles that he felt like Bill had something to do with it, but backed out at the last minute. There is no further info on this information. The tipster didn't remember the uncle's name, and there's no further information on that lead. So, Who else knew Bill was going to the police station about burglaries at Molly's? Had Bill already been working with the police on the Molly's case? Was he going to testify against the people who had been arrested? Why did he suddenly want to move to Washington State? These would certainly be strong leads to follow up on. Drug Connections As with Jamie, there were several reports that there was a rumor that Bill was involved in drugs somehow. There were also several reports in which people stated that Bill only smoked weed and drank alcohol. The manager of Clark Oil called on April 26, 1991 to state a black male customer came in and started talking about how bad it was that Bill had been killed. He then said he heard information from people in Leroy while he was on his route working that Bill was killed over drugs and said it was cocaine. She described the black male as clean-cut and good-looking, and she didn't know where he worked, nor did she get a description of the vehicle he was driving. On June 7, 1991, RLT spoke with the Clark oil manager about lead 241A. She stated he had not returned to the store. RLT went into the store. At this point, all leads to locate the black male have been negative. This lead is cleared. RLT, June 11, 1991. Another lead came into the station on April 29, 1991, from someone after speaking with a DCI agent. He came in to talk to the Bloomington Police Department about information on Bill Little and his drug use. He stated that, redacted, also believes that, redacted, that Bill Little did cocaine and they got their drugs through, redacted, who is, redacted, natural father. He also stated that on the day of the shooting, he had went to the Clark station around 11 a.m. to talk to Little. When he went inside, he asked the male employee on duty what time Bill would be into work and was told 3 p.m. Stated he did not give the attendant his name and left the store on foot, and that he was wearing blue jeans and a red shirt. He stated he learned about the shooting the next day. 
after obtaining the info from Redacted. He then spoke with DCI agent about drug trafficking in the city. The name and picture of this informant are redacted. There is also a very curious ISP report that states homicide intelligence developed via phone toll analysis establishing an association between two Zone 6 case investigations. Little, a series of armed robberies, and the subsequent shooting homicide of Little at the Clark Station in Illinois, and a Zone 6 intelligence case targeting the activities of Redacted et al., the Bloomington area, who is suspected of trafficking in large amounts of narcotics. The information was forwarded to Sergeant Irwin, supervisor of the Little Homicide, and Sergeant Frank Walter, Task Force 6 squad leader. There is no other information on this lead. ISP recommended that an interview be conducted with Redacted, but suggested that the link connecting them was not to be revealed to ensure the integrity of the investigation. To further clarify, the analysis revealed that a common telephone number had appeared in both cases, and the person who owned that number has an address in Downs, Illinois, and had turned up in a tip, L57A, on this case. That tip was given on April 2nd of 1991, and in it, this person identifies a person that looks like the composite, and all names are redacted. Isn't it interesting that the ISP recommended that detectives refrain from revealing that link? They had no problems giving Jamie's name to Bill's family and everyone else they interviewed. Altercations Brenda and her daughter Susan Little told police in an April 9th interview that she knew of an incident Bill was involved in during the summer of 1989 in which Bill was apparently receiving troubles from a girl named Shannon Samples, now Went, and her then-boyfriend Chad Went, both from Leroy. According to Susan, they had threatened violence towards Bill, as well as harassing him at work and scratching Bill's car and redacted car. In another police report from April 1991, a Patrick Nugent was interviewed at the local high school. He stated that a friend, Alicia, had told him repeatedly that his girlfriend, Michelle, was seeing someone else, but that Michelle denied it. He related an incident between Bill and himself that occurred approximately three weeks ago on a Friday night between 8 and 9 p.m. He stated he was at Michelle's house when Bill, Danny Hartley, and Tracy Askew arrived and a verbal altercation ensued between them. He said Bill left the area and Danny returned and tried to start a physical confrontation with him, ultimately hitting him once in the head before leaving. He said the only comment Michelle made about the murder of Bill was that she said it was her fault because she treated him so bad. He also stated he owned a black Harley-type leather jacket with zippers on both sides of his chest and a belt around the waist, saying that Michelle wears it and he has not worn it for three months. Recall, this is the exact description of the leather jacket from Gutierrez. This incident was confirmed in police reports from interviews with Tracy Askew, Michelle, and a redacted report. In Tracy's interview, she added that after Bill's death, she heard Michelle say that her problem with the two men was made easier by Bill's death. Michelle stated 
that Bill would have a quarter-ounce bag of weed with him at times and would smoke weed in her presence. She went on to say that Danny told her that Bill was acting different on the day he was killed. Another friend of Bill's, named Redacted, stated that Bill told him if someone tried to rob him, he would have to see a gun before giving him any money. He listed Nugent as a known enemy of Bill's and repeated the story of the confrontation. He stated another enemy of Bill's was Chad Baker, who had a couple of fights with Bill. The last enemy he mentioned was Chip Givens, and that he thought it was strange that Chip got a haircut the day or two after the murder, but he didn't think he fit the composite. He said the most Bill ever gambled at the pool hall was $20, and he does not remember him ever owing anyone any money. He said Bill mostly smoked weed, drank a lot of alcohol, but he has seen Bill use white crosses and acid. He also said his girlfriend, Angie West, thought that Todd Phoenix may somehow be involved. When West submitted a tip, she said the rumor was that Todd Phoenix did the murder or knows who did. There are no other reports on this matter. The enemies of Bill appear to be cleared, but for no clear reasons. At least no one was cleared because he didn't look anything like the composite. Lastly, we can't forget the answering machine message that was left at 9.45 and 9.50 p.m. the night of the crime on March 31, 1991. The person who turned it in said it was the wrong number, but when he read about the Clark homicide, he turned it into police the next day. Oh, buddy, you sound like a fucking asshole. And I want to talk to Gina because her boyfriend just died. Yeah, motherfucker. There were no other homicides in that area on that night. Had Bill received a threat from someone? We state these things to illustrate that Bill was having some problems. And those issues should have been explored more deeply. In the very least, when detectives Katz and Barkus reopened the case... Their sole focus was on Jamie Snow, and they failed to explore any of these reports. There were 600 leads in this case, and they only investigated Jamie Snow. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show, give their point of view, to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. In this episode, we presented some leads the police had 30 years ago that could have indicated a known assailant and a physical altercation at the scene of the crime. Because these leads were left uninvestigated and physical evidence was overlooked, we don't know how meaningful they are, even now. If you have any information that may help Jane, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. At the time of Bill's murder, he was barely a legal adult. He brought no violence upon himself, and he was a very loved and valued person. At the time of Bill's death, Jamie was only 25. Jamie was also a very much loved and valued person. We hope that the DNA collected from the crime scene will be tested and help tell the truth about what happened that night. We want to explore the blood evidence of 
the scrutiny of today's technology. That's next time on Snowfiles.